May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Joe Rowling um, lived in Edinburgh, Scotland, and um, the story goes that one day that she spent um, her last uh, British pound on a cup of coffee. She had no money left. Last bit she had, she spends on a cup of coffee. She sits down in this little coffee shop called the Elephant Room uh, in Edinburgh, and she takes out a napkin and a pen from her purse, and she begins to sort of doodle on it, a little thought, and the little thought kind of turned into another thought and another to another, and eventually she began to sketch out what's become a novel, an idea for a novel. And it was a children's novel. And it was set in a, uh, in a mythical place in a faraway land. Very similar school, like a, like a private school, like Harriet's that was right behind um, the elephant room where she was sitting having a cup of coffee. She began to sketch out this idea for this novel. And that little sketch on a napkin became... The, the impetus for the, the Harry Potter novel. And that novel turned into a second, into a third, into a seventh, and produced uh, motion pictures um, and all kinds of, of uh, you know, ancillary equipment that goes along with that and everything. And this, this young woman who spent her last dollar on a cup of coffee became almost an instant overnight billionaire. One of the most, uh, uh, you know, wealthy and powerful people in the United Kingdom and as I've read that story many times, I thought how much I love that story. You know, this is, this is what you want. Somebody spends their last dollar on a cup of coffee, has an idea, and that idea becomes the, um, the impetus for billions of dollars in success. And, and just the very possibility that that could happen is the sort of the spark of hope that we have. You know, who knows? This is what, if, if a day is really bad, maybe tomorrow's better. And you get up and you try again. It's that, that possibility that exists. And it gives rise to all kinds of great literature, doesn't it? I mean, Cinderella or um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I remember Mrs. Henderson in the fifth grade reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And do you remember that? And I'm rooting for Charlie to get that gold ticket, you know, because if he does, you know, everything's going to change. Life is going to be grand. And he, of course, does. <laughs> it's what brings us hope. And people need hope like that, especially if they're living in the clutches of poverty or war or some sort of oppression. Things can change. Tomorrow can be better. But sometimes it kind of goes the other way, too, doesn't it? Um, maybe you remember the story of uh, Houston Astros pitcher J.R. Richards, top of the game, starting pitcher of the All-Star game, throw a ball over 100 miles an hour. He was amazing, and he was a millionaire. And after uh, a couple years out of baseball, he was homeless with no money at all. People who win the lottery and have all these, uh, you know, untold riches they had never expected, and within three years, they're, you know, flat broke and have nothing left. The sort of Human failure stories are almost as common and perhaps even more so than the human successes, right? How could someone mess things up so badly? In some ways, we're shocked when we hear the J.K. Rowling story. But we're not so shocked when we hear the other one. We're not so surprised. The book of Isaiah sort of comes to us in that way. For 39 chapters, Isaiah has been predicting a huge collapse. Look, it's coming. A big, serious problem is on the horizon. Israel, the place in which he lives, the nation in which he lives, you're about to face a serious collapse. 
But Israel had everything going its way when Isaiah is ta- telling them this, these stories. They seem blessed beyond measure. They have wealth. They have power. Their borders are expanding. It seems like they're more secure, not less than ever. They live in a land flowing with milk and honey. Things are really good. But even at that, it wasn't enough for most of the people who lived in in the nation of Israel. They were jealous of the nations around them. They thought the nations around them had it better than they had. um, And and they they were envious of what they had. And so they began to mimic the lifestyles that they thought were, were those which would bring them the things that they wanted. They disregarded the Bible and the Ten Commandments. They, um, they, they, they pushed away prophets, preachers like Isaiah, and found other preachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Tell me, this, tell me good things. This is what I want to hear. Tell me good things. They found politicians who would advance the agendas that they wanted. They disregarded their families. They disregarded concern for the poor. Even worse, they began to dabble in idolatry. And pretty soon, things were looking, from a preacher standpoint, very perilous for the people of Israel. There are very few preachers who would do what Isaiah does. But there are some. If you just take your Bible and thumb through the pages following Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then read through the the book of the Twelve, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and so on, they're all saying the same thing. Don't trust in the strength of your economy. Don't trust in the power of your military. Don't trust in the certainty of your, your national situation. Because if you, if you take off, if you jettison the commandments of God, if you jettison the way of God, you are going to be doomed to destruction. But the people would not listen. Until Babylon came knocking on the door. Babylon wasn't just a power in the ancient Near East. It was a superpower. And when they set their sights on the, the, the kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, they, the end was in sight. They knew what was going to happen. And they did. They took it. They killed the people. They tore down the walls. They burned the center of Jewish identity, the temple in Jerusalem, to the ground and took all the, all the money out of it. And then, to add insult to injury, they gathered up people. And this is the way you, you fought wars, wars in the ancient Near East. You gather up people and you deport them. You move them hundreds of miles away from their home and you put them in a ghetto where they just have to scrap to survive. And then you take your own people and you move it back into the homes that were vacated. This is the way you control guerrilla warfare and all those sorts of things. And this is exactly what happened to Israel. They were exiled from their homes. And God was silent. The preachers quit preaching. No word from the heavens. God is no longer speaking. He's quiet. And what do you do when God is quiet and everything around you is going to to pieces? You weep, you cry, you pound your chest, and you sing country western songs. This is exactly what you do, right? You remember this. Um, Nobody does sad songs like country musicians. I don't know if you, you know, I'm old school country, you know, I I like, I like the old stuff. Um, You know, Willie Nelson, you know, blue eyes crying in the rain. I can cry just hearing that song, right? Um, Charlie Pride, where do I put her memories? Any of you know this old stuff, you know? And, And, oh, and I still listen to this almost on a, you know, I don't know, at least a monthly basis when I want to feel bad, is a Patsy Cline, I Fall to Pieces. You remember this song? Oh, yeah. They know how to sing Sad songs, country singers. Psalm 137 was written by a country singer. Okay. 
By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How should I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You hear the psalmist is crying. This is, um, this is with a steel guitar and some drums in the background. But it's more than just sadness. What, hel- what else happens when you're in this sort of situation? You get angry, right? And there's anger. Listen to the end of the psalm. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites on the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Their, in- their enemies, their neighbors, were standing around when the Babylonians are destroying and they're cheering them on. And the psalmist says, O da- daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, Blessed shall he be who repays you for what you've done to us. Who revenge. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, your babies, and dashes them against the rocks. Whew. That's fierce, isn't it? Bitter. Anger. Blessed is the person who kills your babies. Now that's how bad it was. And then for 70 years... For 70 years, Israel remains in exile. 70 years is a long time. It's long enough for people who have gone into exile to die in exile. It's long enough for children who have have been born in exile to, to have grown into adulthood and heard those stories about what it was like back in the days in Jerusalem and thought, oh, those are just crazy old tales. Things were never that good. It was never like that. It's long enough for even the slight glimmer of hope to be extinguished. And then we get this. And then Isaiah finally begins to preach. He finally begins to speak. A voice, a voice, a voice. Three times a voice begins to speak in the beginning of of Isaiah chapter 40. And here's what it says. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her her warfare has ended. It's a message of hope. What? Hope. There's people who rebelled against God. There's people who were more concerned about their own comfort and ease and wealth and who, who disregarded the commandments of God. Speak tenderly to them, to this people. They're captives, sure. They're exiled from their homes, of course. But they deserve it. <laughs> they had it coming. This is exactly what the prophets told him would happen. And then it did happen. They had it coming. They got the punishment that was fit for their crime. And God is coming to them. This is what Isaiah says. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a pathway in the desert, a highway for our God. That is not the way you do it. You know, Lord, that's not the way you do it. You make them come crawling to you, right? They're the ones that messed up. They're the ones who, who rebelled. They're the ones who ignored the message of the prophets. You make them, on their belly, crawl to you. Come here. But that's not what Isaiah says, is it? God is coming to them. God himself is coming to them. Get up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God is coming. Here he is. Look right here. God, God himself, on the way. All you need to do 
is get ready. Do you know what it looks like when the king comes? Well, we know something about it, maybe. We know what it looks like when a star arrives, don't we? When, the, when it's, the, it's the awards show and the stars arrive. What happens? Do you know what happens? The limousine pulls up, right? The limousine, the long, stretched car, you know, it's like, a, it's like a triple car. It's like we could have had one car, but we stuck three together to show you how much we're worth. Right? We, have a, we have a triple long car, and it pulls up, and, and only two people are back there, you know, like, and they get out, and they get out on a red carpet, and they're dressed in the finest clothes, and there are lights all around, and, and there are cameras flashing, and there are people, other people, beautiful people who are held at bay because they're not as good. Because here are the stars. I mean, come on, man. We've seen the Oscars, right? We know, we know what this looks like. We know what it looks like when the ball team arrives. You know what it looks like when the ball team arrives? The ball team flies in on a plane. Flies in on an airplane. I remember I was so stoked to go to the parade in Cleveland when the Cavaliers won um, the, the championship last year. And, and I was telling Abby, like, at, at Game 7, like, I can't wait, I'm going to the parade, you know, you got to go to work, I'm going to the parade. She says, no, you're on a plane to Charleston. Like, no, not that day, I'm not on a plane to And I was. Um, but I'm at the airport, I'm, I'm waiting for my plane, and I look across the tarmac, and here comes the, the Cavaliers plane flying into town. And there was this huge crowd of people at the airport. Like, I could see them, and I couldn't be there. This is what it looks like when the ball team arrives. They come on their own plane. You know, it's supposed to be for, like, lots of passengers, and it's just for them. And then they get out of that, and they get on this really nice bus that costs more than most people's homes. And, and then they, they pull up to the stadium that was a billion dollars to build, and it's built just for them. And they get out, and they're all dressed up. They have these, you know, these really expensive suits on, and they're listening to music on the best equipment. And, and they're too busy to make eye contact. They're too preoccupied. They're the most important people. This is what it looks like when the ball team arrives. Can I give you just one more? <laughs> what does it look like when the president arrives? The president flies on the largest passenger jet in the world, and it's just for him. <laughs> I mean, there are other people that fly on there, but the plane is for him. It's for one person. He has his own bedroom and an office, and whoever knows what else is all in there. The guy with the, the launch codes for a nuclear war is on that plane. You know, they're, they're important people. And when he lands, he comes down the steps, and there's another red carpet, and there's, there's the prime minister of the other country, or the queen, or the tribal chief, or whoever. And the president looks impeccable in his suit, and, and there are men with guns all around who are doing nothing but protecting him ready to throw themselves into harm's way if even the slightest um, hint of nefarious intent by the crowd. This is what it looks like when the president arrives. We know what it looks like when the important person is coming. We know. We've, I mean, we've, we've seen the Oscars, right? We know what it looks like. Oh, Israel... Your God, your God himself is coming. Are you ready? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.